0: Today is Psalm 2, I want to encourage you to turn there, and in fact to stand as we look at God's holy inspired inerrant word profitable for us for all instruction and in righteousness. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of your word, and certainly for the Psalms, and ask that you would help us as we learn from it today, Psalm 2, and All that you would teach us through it, especially as you speak of the glory of your sovereign kingship and rule over all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Last week I said that Psalm 1 forms the introduction to the entire book of Psalms, and, and that rather than treat Psalms as a hymnal or a collection of songs... We need to step back and ask questions like, why did the compiler of psalms under the direction of the Holy Spirit choose the specific psalms that he did and arrange them in the way that he did? What we discovered were some important things. If you weren't with us last week, I encourage you to go back and and listen to the sermon on Psalm 1. But a few things in summary. First, there is a clear structuring of the whole book. For example, there are five separate cohesive sections that make up the book of Psalms with each section ending with a doxology. This five-fold structure, and many of you as I put up the endings of the Psalms, you said, really? That's there where it says amen and amen, right? At the end of each doxological ending of these books. And this five-fold structure recalls to mind the five-fold books of the Torah. Genesis through Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. And in fact, Psalm 1 roots the entire book of Psalms in obedience to the instruction of the Lord, the Torah of the Lord. And readers are expected to understand that the Psalms are like the instruction and in law given through Moses, they are profitable for growth in holiness. Second, Psalm 1 begins with a choice. Do you wish to be blessed and filled with joy, or do you wish to perish like the wicked? It doesn't seem to be like a, a really good choice in the second choice, right? Well, you would be amazed, right, at how many make the wrong choice. But Psalm 1 starts with that crossroads, and, and you are there, two roads diverging, right, in the wood, and... And which one will you take? Will you take the one less traveled by, or will you take the broad path that leads to destruction? And assuming that the reader desires to be blessed, Psalm 1 proceeds to explain what has to happen. And because this choice is the introduction to the book of Psalms, we expect that the remaining Psalms will, to some extent, show us the process and result of being blessed. We expect to understand more about the reasons why we should be planted like a tree by living water and what it means to be holy. And as Psalm 2 reveals how the wicked respond when we make the choice to be blessed. Now what I didn't tell you last week is that before there were chapter numbers in the books of the Bible, Psalms 1 and 2 were actually a single psalm. Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers, referred to Psalm 1 and 2 as being a single psalm. A century later, Origen, another church father had in his possession, he says, I have two Hebrew manuscripts. One has Psalm 1 separated from Psalm 2, and the other has them as one psalm. The Talmud, the ancient collection of Jewish tradition and rabbinic commentary, considers the first two psalms to be one psalm. So what happened? Why are they separated now? Well, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, separated those two psalms. And it seems to have caught in on some of the later manuscript copies because a few centuries after Christ, time of origin and and after, there was a whole uh, textual line in which the two psalms were separated. But in the earliest manuscripts, it was just a single psalm. And ultimately, whether these first two Psalms in our Bible are meant to be one, we don't know for absolute certainty. It does seem that with the first Psalm beginning with, Blessed is the One, and the second Psalm ending with, Blessed are those, we are looking at what seem like two bookends to a single thought. And that's how I'm going to be treating it, and how most commentators treat it, that these first two Psalms serve together as the introduction to the entire book. And really, if if you think about it, the last verses of Psalm 1, they so naturally transition into the first verses of Psalm 2. Psalm 1 ends with the way of the wicked will perish. And maybe some of you were wondering, well, it seems like an abrupt and kind of, uh, well, it doesn't seem like it ends well with how the first one started, the blessed are, is the one, and if you put it together with the first sentence of Psalm 2, well, now we see how closely they match together. So think about it. Psalm 1, the way of the wicked will perish. Why then do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? right? It just doesn't make sense. If they're going to perish... If they're going to face judgment, why are they raging and plotting in vain? If they'll not be able to stand in the day of God's reckoning and if they will be blown like chaff away in the wind, why do they still stand against the Lord and against his people? What does that mean for the blessed one who has made the right choice to be a tree that is anchored in the instruction of the Lord? Well, that's what Psalm 2 tells us. And so we start I want to start with verse 4 though in Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision and that Hebrew word yashav which here's translated sit in some of your other versions is translated enthroned. And enthroned is actually better because yashav when referring to kings means to sit on a throne and in So in Psalm 29.10, we read, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. Same word there. He sits enthroned as king forever. Over the flood. What What does that mean? Well, the word translated flood is really the whole water supply of the earth that, of course, in Noah's day was used to form the flood. And and so, to say that the Lord sits enthroned over the waters is to say that he is both enthroned in heaven and sovereign over things like weather and the oceans that cover 70% of the surface of the earth. And of course, sitting enthroned in heaven, yes, the most obvious thing is to say he is enthroned over something as amazing and expansive as the waters and that which formed the flood, but he's also obviously king over the land too. The rest of the 30%. And that's why Psalm 47.8 says God reigns over the nations. He sits on His holy throne. And so this sovereign, eternal God enthroned in heaven and ruling over all the earth, the waters and the land, is the context for the earlier verses of Psalm 2. And if you look there, verse 2, the the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. And when we read the phrases kings of the earth and rulers, that's why I start with verse 4 because we have to understand that their authority is... Subordinate; It's underneath the greater authority of God who sits enthroned in the heavens. These kings and rulers may be crowned and, and treated as kings by the people of the earth, but they're kings with a lowercase k, right? Whereas God is the king of kings. And that's why verse 10 warns these men, these creatures, men who will die, be wise you kings and you can almost put those in quotation marks. Be wise you kings. Be warned you rulers. What do they want? Verse 3 says, "Let us burst their bonds." Did you catch that reference? Their bonds, their cords, who's there referring to? It's it's referring to the Lord and his anointed, and we'll talk about that more in just a moment, but the important thing is to understand that these earthly kings, they see God's judgment about their future, as described in Psalm 1, to be a bond, a restriction. I like to think of it this way, Psalm 2 is describing this summit meeting amongst the leaders of the world, people who would not normally be in alliance with one another. But nonetheless, they are at least in this one common purpose united together. It's a common threat to them. Consider the United States' unusual alliance with the Soviet Union and others during World War II as they fought the onslaught of Germany and Italy and Japan. You know, the alliance versus the Axis powers, right? What fueled this abnormal alliance and unity of nations was the threat of a clear and present danger that if, if left unopposed would have been overwhelming. And so in Psalm 2, you have to ask, well, what is the threat? These rulers and kings coming together in unity saying, let us together as a group, let us burst these bonds. Well, the threat is the, it's what we see in Psalm 1. It's the presence and the work and the authority and the power of God. They rebel at the thought that they should have to answer to someone who is greater than themselves. They don't want to be under judgment because that implies that they're accountable to the Lord and His anointed. And of course, they are under judgment because they have sinned against God, and so part of bursting their bonds and casting away their cords is being able to reject what God has said about their sin. So it's not only freeing themselves from accountability to the ultimate authority who sits enthroned in the heavens, but is also making a statement about, you know, I am not accountable to this absolute truth that declares my behavior to be sinful. Well, in Psalm 1, the blessed one had to make a choice between being planted as a tree in God's holy courts versus walking with, standing with, and sitting with the wicked. And Psalm 2 makes it clear just what the consequences are of that choice. You see, the wicked doesn't just move on down their path and leave the blessed one alone. I said last week that Psalm 1 sets up a one against the masses image. It's, it, but it's not like walking along a sidewalk against the flow of traffic in a busy city. As a crowd of people, you think New York City is a crowd of people are walking the opposite way, your direction, and they come and you you attempt to move out of the way, right? As they part ways around you, that's not the way it. That's not the one against the masses image here that we get in Psalm two. Psalm 2 tells us that the wicked want to do away with the good. They rage and they plot. Foremost, they rage and plot against God and his anointed, but they also rage and plot against everything and everyone that serves God and his anointed. And that means that they rage and plot against you. So if you go back to the image of that walking against traffic on a crowded sidewalk, and now imagine that as you go, you see the enraged looks of violence on the people who want to turn around, want you to turn around their way or else destroy you. You know, in a New York City type situation, everybody kind of minds their own business in their own personal zone. But imagine as you're walking along and suddenly everybody's eyes are on you, right? They want to hinder your walk. They want to trip you up. They want to throw you into the street in front of a moving car. Or go back to the image of the tree and imagine the wicked picking up an ax And trying to chop down the tree. That's what we're talking about. And what is God's response in Psalm 2? Is it a look of dismay? Does he say, There are too many of them? Does he say, Run, (laughs) pick up your roots and run? What does he do? Verse 4 says, He laughs. There's no quaking in the boots. There's no need to hunker down and get in a defensive position. It's just laughter at the thought that the kings and rulers of the earth think that they control anything outside of his permission. And who is the Lord's anointed? The word anointed in Hebrew is Mashiach, which we translate sometimes into the word Messiah. And anointing someone meant to pour oil upon their head and commission them for an important task. It symbolized pouring out the Holy Spirit upon them so that they would be enabled to perform that task for the Lord. And many different people in the Bible were considered to be anointed. Aaron and his sons anointed as priests. Some of the prophets were anointed. Samuel anoints Saul, and David is kings. And it's that third category, the kings, that is meant in Psalm 2. And We know that because in verse 6, it says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So the question about who is the anointed one is to ask what king is being referenced here in the psalm. Well, according to Acts 4, the author of this psalm is David. And many commentators believe that the psalm was used at David's coronation ceremony. And on that special day, God declared David to be a son. And if you read verses 7 and following, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And as God's anointed king, David did become as a son to the Lord, and it was a special relationship in that God would extend his righteousness through David's reign. David would be a king who would rule as God would rule. And when David ascended the throne, he began to inherit the nations and to rule over them. Some commentators even believe that Psalm 2 was used at every coronation of kings in David's family. Solomon, when he became king, Psalm 2 would have been said, and Rehoboam and so on. Well, each king indeed was anointed and was called to serve God, regarded as the Lord's son. Even as we read in 1 Chronicles 29, it says Solomon sat on the throne, not of David's dynasty, but on the throne of the Lord as king instead of David his father and prospered in all Israel obeyed him. But what's the history of Israel? Many of David's sons do not act as sons of God, do they? They don't rule as God would rule. And the anointing could be removed, even as it was once with Saul. And all of this foreshadows the more perfect son of David, Jesus Christ. In fact, if we look at a passage from Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 5, we see there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, which is the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And stop to pause there for a second. I'm going to comment as we read these verses and ask you some questions. What is the passage here of Isaiah saying? That there will be a descendant of David, right? Upon whom the spirit of the Lord will rest. In other words, there will be an anointed one in David's line. And it goes on to say his delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall judge not by the sight of his eyes, nor by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness. He will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And so we we have here a description of him ruling and judging, and he's ruling over the whole earth, as we see in the Isaiah passage, all the nations. And then Isaiah finishes, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, And with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked, which matches that part in Psalm 2 that describes striking the nations with a rod of iron. And it says, righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. So before Christ, neither David nor any of his sons had fulfilled Psalm 2. The people of Israel realized that. In fact, David's sons were, if anything, getting worse. And the extent of Israel's rule was shrinking. It wasn't expanding. It was at its greatest point under David. So how could Psalm 2's comment about the Anointed One ruling the nations be in any way descriptive of Israel? That's a question, and God actually speaks that answer through Isaiah. It's because the anointed one in Psalm two, while it might yes refer to God's special relationship to the anointed kings of Israel, clearly is pointing to a greater reality. It's pointing to something that these kings are are shadowing. You know, they're they're typical of. There would one day be the anointed one, capital A, capital O, a messiah who would exceed even David. And his kingdom and his rule through righteousness over all the nations would spread God's reign. Let's read Acts 4 starting with verse 23. When they were released they went to their friends and reported What they had heard, what the chief priests and the elders had said to them, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, right, they're quoting Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered against Your holy servant, Jesus, whom You anointed. And you can see how the apostles connect Jesus to both Psalm 2 and to the expectation of a Messiah. Surely, yes, David may have been speaking most immediately about his own kingship and that of his sons in Psalm 2, But as the apostles recognize, he's speaking by the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit knows the future from the past and the present. The Spirit meant something even more. Jesus would be the Son of God and the Anointed One. And when he was baptized, the Father pronounced him, according to Matthew 4. Here we see, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens opened to him, And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. And we need to be having in the background Psalm 2. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And when Jesus rose from the dead after the crucifixion, the evidence of his sonship, and the approval by the Father were made clear. Because unlike the sons of David, and even David himself, Jesus was without sin and blameless. And so this is what the Apostle Paul says of him in Acts 13. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And again, as I said, the earliest manuscripts don't even have the word second there. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. We must see David saying through the Holy Spirit that the nations rage and plot against the Lord and his anointed Jesus Christ. And the Lord may laugh in response at the futile raging of rebellious earthly leaders. But this is not an amused laugh. It is a laugh of derision, it says there in verse 4. It is a laugh of anger. Verse 5 says, He will speak to them in His wrath. He will terrify them in His fury. All those who rebel, Jesus will break with a rod of iron the truth that proceeds from His mouth in righteousness. And so there's the warning given in the final verses. Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. And it may... Seem odd there to see the phrase kiss the sun. But in the ancient world, to kiss the feet of a king or to kiss the ground in front of the king's feet was a symbol of humility and political obedience. And so the worldly rulers are being told, You said you want to cast his bonds from you and his cords, but instead, Be wise and kiss His feet. Acknowledge that He is both King and Lord and that His truth is absolute and that you are accountable to Him. God has set His Son upon the throne to end the world's rebellion that began with Adam and Eve. And I like what one commentator says about these first two Psalms. He says, while Psalm 1 orients the reader to receive the whole collection of psalms as instruction, Psalm 2 makes explicit what the content of that instruction is. The Lord reigns. And so if Christ the Son is the King, who are His subjects? One thing that Jesus described as He taught about the kingdom of God is that in this kingdom... God intervenes in the affairs of men, and the kingdom brings about widespread judgment and renewal. And unbelievers are judged, believers are renewed. And so, in one sense, Christ's subjects are all of humanity. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So in time, every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is no person or place that escapes the reign of of Christ, the Anointed One, and yet in the most visible light, the kingdom of God is the reign of God acknowledged by His people. And that makes sense of other passages like 1 Corinthians 6-9 where Paul writes, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? First 1 Corinthians 15.50, where Paul says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So yes, every single human being, wicked and righteous alike, are subject to the authority of Christ. And yet, in its fullest, most beautiful, glorious form as we see in the Scriptures, the kingdom of God is, is the reign of God with His people and over His people And only those called by His name will be present there. That's what Revelation 1 says. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood, has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve His God and Father, to Him be glory and power forever and ever. So we, my friends, you and me and all who call upon the name of Jesus Christ, we are the kingdom of God. It's a people, a person, more than a geopolitical reality. It's a a reality that is already here in the sense that God does reign through us, through His Spirit, but it is a kingdom that is not fully yet and that we are not quite what we will one day be, kings and priests who serve forever forever. And we are to reflect the character of our King. Like Jesus, we submit to the Father because our King has demonstrated His submission to the Father. And we submit by giving up ourselves even to the point of death, even as our King, Jesus, demonstrated what true leadership and obedience looks like. And remember that one of the important lessons from Psalm 1 was that the consequences of the choice between standing With the wicked versus standing with the Lord is that the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment. Whereas the righteous will be firmly planted. And Psalm 2 expands upon that by saying standing with the wicked is not just about taking a break. and, And especially you young people, listen to this. Standing and and sitting with the wicked is not just about living for the moment under your own law and rule with your own choices and trying to break the yoke of God's authority. Psalm 2 clearly says that that type of attitude is rebellion against the king of heaven and the one whom he has anointed to reign, Jesus Christ. To listen to the instruction or Torah of God is to embrace the truth that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That is what will lead to being blessed. And interestingly, like I said, Psalm 2 ends where Psalm 1 began, which is, Blessed are all those who take refuge in the Son. Uh, helps expand a little bit about what it means to be a tree that is planted. It's not only a tree that is listening to the, and meditating upon the instruction of God, but it's a tree that recognizes that I am taking refuge and the only one whose righteousness can guarantee that I will be with the Lord forever. And the amazing thing, you know, is, is we kind of step now back from these two psalms and and look at what the kings and the rulers of the earth are trying to say. They, They think might makes right. They think that it's about power and authority. But for the Lord it is right that makes right and might. The righteous, those who kiss the sun, may be vulnerable to the power's of the world as we learn in the next psalm, in Psalm 3. They may be vulnerable at times, but they will never be without help. And the striking claim of Psalm 2 is that joy is found by those who take refuge in God. And centuries later, after the psalm, Jesus would say during the Sermon on the Mount that the meek, not the physically powerful, not the proud, actually inherit the whole earth. That's the very thing that the kings and the rulers are so desperate to control. Jesus' kingdom is paradoxical, friends. It's, it's upside down from what the world thinks. You must be convinced that it is foolish and futile to fight against Christ for your ability to rule your life without consequence and in autonomy. It is ridiculous to think that by might and power given to you by your peers that you can command the one who sits enthroned in the heavens. The world hates God's anointed. Will you also fight against Him or will you take refuge in Him? And if you say, I want to take refuge in Christ, which is really the only choice, as Psalm 1 brought out, He has a mission for you. Even as the Father told the Son that He would make the nations His heritage and the ends of the earth His possession, Jesus has said, you are His ambassador to fulfill that promise. As Matthew 28 shares, all authority has been given to Me. The Fulfillment of Psalm 2 in heaven and on earth. Therefore, as a result of that commissioning, I now commission you. Go, make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe the things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so every time you fulfill the commission, you're extending Jesus' own fulfillment of Psalm 2. And not only that, but think about how the New Testament describes your own life in Christ. You too have been adopted as sons and daughters. You have been filled and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which means that you are anointed ones as well. Not anointed with a capital A like Jesus Christ. Your righteousness is the imputed righteousness of the perfect anointed one, but you are anointed ones. And as you take refuge in the Lord and as you recognize your identity as an anointed one of God, can you stand boldly for him? The nations will rage. They will plot against you. Jesus said, they persecuted me. Why would you as a servant think that the way they treated the master is going to be any different than the way they will treat you? But how does God respond? And here's the point. He laughs. He laughs. He laughs and he gives them a dire warning kiss the sun. And that's what you must be bold in. That's the one that you're taking refuge in. You have nothing to fear. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for the blessing of life and truth. We thank You, Lord, that You have given us the Son in whom we may take refuge. We thank You, Lord, that we are called to not be fearful, but to instead realize that as the nations plot rage even against our own attempts to proclaim the Gospel and to live in truth, Lord, that You laugh. And you warn them, you tell them of their clear end, but you have also told us of our clear end. May that give us the courage to continue. Lord, thank you for these two psalms, or single psalm, that form an introduction to this great book that lead us, call us, proclaim in their very essence the worship and praise of our great God.